Hi guys, this is Keeping It Real with Bridget O'Neill here. The story behind the storytellers. I interview the biggest, best storytellers who also partner as hosts, comedians, and writers. You know when you hear a five-minute story on the moth and you think, hmm, I wonder what happened to them since. How has it changed them or affected their life? Who is this person on a daily basis? Well, I'll help you uncover those questions and we'll have fun along the way, I promise. David Crabb is an L.A.-based author, performer, and storyteller. His 2013 solo show, Bad Kid, was named a New York Times critic pick. Bad Kid was the memoir and also released in 2015 by Harper Perennial. David is also a fellow goth, clubber, Texan, probably one of the funniest, uh, most sincere guys out there. Folks, it's David Crabb. I was a kid that was raised in a mall in Texas, like literally like nice. that was where I spent the weekends. I would go there with my mom to work at like someday she worked at the arcade. Someday she worked at the maternity store, wherever the bookstore. Wow. And like I was. It, did they me, just did, did, did they hire her to was it just one company that hires her to to work at these different stores or did she get bored and be like, OK, now I want to work at the arcade or now I want to work at the. She would get bored or need more store. money or want to work more or less or just find a better job. And that mall. I identify was, with her. That's, yeah, that, that's kind of why I said that. Like I there's this one shopping center in Newtown where I grew up and I've worked at like the the Rite Aid, the dairy, the ice cream, the, the dry cleaner. Yeah. And everyone's like, you really like that shopping center, huh? I'm like, nah, you know, it's here. Um, yeah, but it's yeah, there. tell me more about the mall. Like, that's even like a good backdrop for like most of your like for a story or for like a book, because the arcade. Did you get like some free tokens? Did you do, wait? Did you use tokens or quarters? Well, no, I mean, I, I wrote about you know the 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 book has a lot of material before the show starts, and the first few chapters in the memoir are actually heavily about like the mall and being with my mom there and her giving me like tokens. In Bad Kid, and, yeah. I don't remember that part. Oh God! I got. I should reread it. It's been metal, like four heavy, years, right? The heavy metal kids that would come in there would be so pissed because I would get tokens before she opened the gate, and I would load up the video. Uh, th- there was a music video jukebox, and it was loaded up with so much Rick Astley and Bananarama and Taylor <laughs> Dane that by the time all these like angry mullet kids and denim jackets came in wanting to like play pinball and listen to Dokken, like they had hours of Lisa Lisa and Colt Jam to get through before they. Could could like enjoy and they and they knew it was me they hated me but like a thing about the mall that i loved was that you know i would like bounce through those stores and those people knew me it was like my mayberry it was like hello corn dog man hello orange julius hello um i love orange julius orange juliuses are so good they're so undervalued good oh and like for me you know i lived a very social youth and for me a big part of that was rolling with I was the only child of a single mom or when I was with my dad hanging out with him you know he was a loner and you know single a lot so I felt like a lot of my life was interfacing with adults like the friends of my parents and like learning to flow like I was actually a lot more comfortable with big groups of adults than kids and then Mm -hmm. I think once I started to get in middle school and started to feel really queer in Texas in the 90s I think being funny and telling stories and maybe even seeming a bit weird was kind of like an armor. Like I could I mm. could I could get in a pool with like a bunch of jocks or a bunch of kickers or a bunch of like dudes 
and Kickers. at least be the funny one that made them laugh. Even though there was right. going to be that one peripheral dude who was friends with all those dudes that was what he would be the wised up one. He was always there in these situations. Like they'd be laughing, David did it, and then there'd be that one sneering from across the room, like, I think I know what you are, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of that intention. Scary. Yeah, a lot of that intention is that's the look you remember. That's the person you got to be funny enough. Even now when I teach storytelling, it's so funny. People will be like, what do you do when you're telling a story and you feel like it's not resonating with the audience? And I- That's a good question. Well, to this day, I I still remember at the Sydney Opera House with the moth, you could only see the first few rows hosting in the Sydney freaking Opera House. Wow. And and, and it was a great That's like a dream. Everyone loving it. And I could see someone in the front row who was literally sneering at me throughout Mm. the entire- thing and it and that is the that's the person you remember like and even when I was young I worked. and the reason I tell that anecdote when I teach is hilariously at the end of that show people come around the stage to meet the tellers and that guy walked up and I was like oh my god this is going to be terrible and he looked at me and completely deadpan was like I just want you to know that I found you just so funny it was such a charming wonderful night for me and my family <laughs> He was like data. That was what? his like default. That was his resting face. He had the best time of wow. his life. And I wasted a fraction of my energy that whole time being like that poor guy. And that was just how his face was in the world. You know? But that's but that's what you do. That's what yeah. you that's what we end up doing. You find that one person, you're like, oh God, that one person out of everybody right now does not like this. How do I what do I do? How do I get yeah. out of this? How do it's I ridiculous over crap. one person? Yeah. 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 So totally. So I think you know, and I've, I've talked to other comedians and, and other queer comedians, too, who, who also talk about this idea that they found their propensity for making people laugh or telling hilarious stories from that place of defense, you know, mm-hmm. when they were young. Um, so I think there's a so for me, it's maybe those those two things, you know, um, is just, you know, and, and Texas. I don't think you can ignore Texas. I think so many people <laughs> grow up with a regional kind of storytelling thing. You know, my grandmother will tell you that she is going to, she will ask you a simple question. I say this all the time. My grandmother will be like, do you want to know who I saw at the store today? And you will ask her to who. And then she will be like, well, first of all, I could barely get there. I-10 is a mess of construction. And what is going on with that new Kevin Costner movie? I saw, and you're like, who did you see? You know, um, and again, that plays into the value of instruction, right? Like, you know, Absolutely. When, when someone teaches you, it's like, oh, you were great or you're natural. Like I say to, I, you know, Sandy Marks was just, so verbose and full of so much information, such a prized student, you know, I I would hope that she got something out of the structure, right? Like, how do you not be like my grandma? I mean, I love my grandma, don't get me wrong, but... Um, I feel like I just saw your grandmother last month when you were here. <laughs> oh, you, Although oh, you I know did. you said in your show, what oh, was it called? God. Us and Them and Me and You. Uh, it just felt like, I know you said it was a compilation of a bunch of women uh, from your hometown that yeah. maybe you really liked or whatever but it still felt like just when you just did that I was like oh my god that's like his grandma oh my god oh you're talking about patty oh you're talking about patty crab oh honey i'm not old enough to be david's grandmother how offensive oh i'm kidding i love you you sound gorgeous on the phone yeah that's that's yeah that's patty (laughs) oh my god patty can make you blush with all of her compliments she does even though some of them are slightly questionable culturally but yeah she can make you blush (laughs) <laughs> but that's what's so great about her is like people forget there's a certain age and how you said like uncomfortably blushed like perhaps may not be the correct but right there's just no there's like this unknown like there's there's no ill intent behind it there's like a certain age where I don't know if we actually have to like uh, what am I trying to say accept it or whatever but when it's just 
kind of that harmless. There's some sort of weird charm to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I and mean, I thought she's yeah. really good at that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like she, you know, I grew up with a lot of those types of characters. You know, there's a long history of men in dresses um, saying possibly uh, uh, not PC things to great effect. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, yeah, I'm definitely interested in that with that character because, you know, Patty is this, you know, Southern woman of an age who has no ill intent, but is the victim in many ways of regionally where she lives, you know, in the center of the country with some very dated views, not surrounded by a lot of minorities or queer right. people. And she wants to reach out, but she's, you know, I mean, the real Patty, like, like when I talk about this conglomeration of women in Texas and the South, you know, those women, like, they're, they haven't voted for themselves in 20 years, 30, 40. You know, their husband oh fills gosh. that in, right? Like, there's not right. a lot of agency, but there's a softness, there's a willingness to reach out and know people, but it's all sort of tinted by that I think that lack of control that 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 you're just you're just a wife you're the wife and mom and that's what you mm -hmm. do but then you get old and the husband drives you crazy and the kids are out of the house and you kind of want to reach out and I think that's a thing that I've seen in certain in women of a certain age from where I'm from and it's refreshing yes. it's exciting when it happens because they're kind of like I mean, I can't help but seeing this on the TV. I mean, I actually like that gay people can get married. I didn't know. I didn't. I, I thought I hated that, but I, they're so nice. They are so nice at the dress store to me. Do you know what I mean? Like even that, like even that compliment falls in line with, you know, like a kind of of cliche. You know, my grandmother very hilariously one time, you know, she was talking about some new neighbors that moved in across the street and she was holding this thing of pecan bread. She was like, these new people that moved in across the street and they made me this pecan bread. I mean, they're Mexican, but they can't help it. Like her, her very ideology about who they were, what she was filled with was love and excitement about their presence and thankfulness for this cake. But it was all... It's not their in, fault that they're Mexican. Yeah, it was all informed by defensive. Like she's lived around people that have probably said horrible things about about Hispanic people and Mexican people for right. years. So when she talks positively about them, she's going to make sure that you that you understand what she means. That they're right? that good or that yeah that they're good in her book. They're still good people despite of what you what you may have heard or right. what you know prejudices yeah. out there. Yeah, yeah, like I understand that that um kind of that balancing act of the two, but yeah. very. Very entertaining. It was really good. <laughs> so how yeah. you're a creative dude, right? So you've got like all of these things going on and mm -hmm. you just like and you finish them. Like you're also very focused. Like you don't have like five thousand creative endeavors going on, a couple of projects going on. Like you have a project that goes on and then you actually actually see it to fruition. You're very focused. Like anyone that can finish a book is a god in my eyes. I just finished my graduate degree to come here to finish my memoir and I gave up on it and I'm now doing podcasts as my thesis. So just work with me here. Um, how do you keep <laughs> that kind of like just being diligent about getting it done? Like how do you how do you do this for the listeners out there, all two of you? How how what are some things that you do? Um, well, I appreciate that you think I'm diligent, and I do think I'm. I agree. However, you know what's interesting about diligence? You know, you just said something that was interesting to me. You were talking about you know a lot of people have a lot of projects, and you seem to have like the one, and you maintain focus and you finish it. Is that I've realized over time, and this is something I'm really really diving back into in the last six months with a real intensity is that you, 
I, I don't just have one thing I focus on. I've really had to remind myself that it takes work and I've got to have three or four or five or six plates spinning because I, like you and many people, are either going to A, lose my passion for one of them, B, mm-hmm. have the person with their power, like whether it's the purse strings or the agent that might rep it, tell me no. Um, I might lose. I hate when my agent tells me no. Yeah, I mean, exactly, right? Like, <laughs> just I, I, might, I don't have an agent. <laughs> I might lose a kind of availability that means like, oh, I, I, I won't be able to perform because I don't have this space. So if I don't have the space, mm-hmm. that means I've got to make art a different way. So yeah, like a lot of, I, I like to think that I'm diligent. But there are increasingly little projects that seem like they are everything. Scripts for solo shows or a thing I thought was a great idea or um, a whole boutique uh, um, theater project I did at my house where I was I did fake cult meetings for people one at a time. Like that, <laughs> that are things that I love that I have done, but they, they do fail. They do lose funding or interest or my passion. So yeah, for me, a large luster. part of it is just keeping enough stuff going so that mm-hmm. the math is more on my side. Like, the great, the book came out. <laughs> you know, like, the book worked. God, that's so great. Um, so isn't, yeah. it the, isn't it the four-year anniversary of your book, Bad it ju- Kid? Yeah, it just happened a couple weeks ago. Um, and, um, you know, and even bringing up the book, it's interesting. Like, I've written four drafts of an entire second memoir since then that I finally shelved oh. a year ago because it was getting so hard. You know, you know, I'm doing all this environmental theater and doing this new show in my house. And a lot of it is because I love this solitary control. No one can keep me from making art if no one else can tell me no. And the thing mm-hmm. about a book is that unless you self-publish, which can be its own kind of monster amount of work, you need a person who is going to be like, yes, I'll bring this manuscript um, to market. And then you need the editor. Yes, I love it. And I'm willing to make this perfect. The publisher. Yes, we're going to make we're going to put 20,000 copies of these everywhere. Right. So I kind of got to a point in terms of working on multiple projects where a year ago I just was like, you know what? I have not created a new solo piece, a new suite of stories for the stage. I have not like used my voice and my body to perform really in a really committed way in like nine months because I've been working on this. So this is the point at which I have to cut the cord and let go. And it doesn't mean it's wasted work. Um, You know, a lot of those stories actually came to fruition in other contexts, but it is an interesting thing to think of, of, you know, one of those plates that was spinning (laughs) and it didn't shatter, but I did have to take it off the stick and just sort of put it down and say, yeah, I can't deal with you right now to feed this other part of myself and make work in a new way, you know? David, what is your, because I've been talking to a lot of artists, I'm asking them the same questions. Mm-hmm. What is your, have you ever had a common a common man job, common person job? Oh, so many. Oh, I've had so many common person jobs. So the bulk of my common person jobs were all in the service industry. I've been a dishwasher and a bar back and a bartender and a waiter and a caterer. Um, I have brought food and drink to people in every capacity that you can imagine mm-hmm. or cleared their refuse away when they were done with it. Um, God, doesn't that help with storytelling, quite honestly? It does, and I think it helps with being a human. You know, I read mm-hmm. an article the other day about how the home ec class is going the way of the dodo as we sort of move past gender tropes and yada, yada, yada. And I think yeah. they should replace that with service industry. I think every person in yeah. high school should have a semester where they have to wait tables or work in a mm-hmm. kitchen or be a, or, or be a, you know, a busser. Um, I think that that job builds character and clues you into class and status and so many other things. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah. And and the book that I actually have shelved now that I'm going to return to was really uh, was a memoir that was all about waiting tables in Lower Manhattan the two weeks after 9-11. Uh, right. Oh, wow. A few, you know, within a very close, you know, proximity to ground zero. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I think everyone should wait tables. I think everyone should be should be forced to do that. And then outside of those jobs, I just did a few weird random things. Like when I first moved to New York, I was a catalog designer for J. Crew for like a year. Um, okay. I worked in an art gallery as an assistant preparator in Chelsea for like nine months. Um, I was that hell. Uh, no. Oh God, no. I really. Enjoyed I just it. hear the word gallery, and then I hear Chelsea, and I just think, my God, that would that could be horrible. Well, I tell a lot of stories about it, and you know, I mean, you know, that's kind of the magic of storytelling, right? There are so many difficult, shitty situations that you can. Well, there are so many like difficult, terrible situations that you can look back on. And be like, oh, what a great experience. But when you were in it, it was just a nightmare. And mm-hmm. for me, working in the gallery was interesting because it was so, I thought it would be like fun and glittery and Club Kitty and Bjorky, but it was actually <laughs> way more like buttoned up and there was it was a moneyed experience. And there were like earth tone tunics and people whispering about what the meaning of a <laughs> painting is. And I was like, this is not my jam. Um, <laughs> and um, so... So that job was what it was. And then the only other weird sort of non um, – oh, and then, you know, uh, acting jobs. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of connected to storytelling. But for years, I was a company member, you know, you know, in actors' equity, you know, so I, I got proper payment. And sometimes I actually got benefits, too, depending on the amount of shows I was in. But I worked with a company in New York called the Axis Theater. So um, – you know, that was, you know, I take for granted sometimes that that was like a paid job and working there was really a creative right. gift, but also like a gig, you know, like I made money doing that. So, yeah, that's great. It's the yeah. best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is one of the favorite stories, one of your more favorite stories that you've told? Oh, my God. You know, I don't know. I, I'm i having a thing, you know, I kind of had a drought, you know, part of the writing I'm doing now is, is about, um, you know, you know about this, the, the sort of long, slow, painful, yet in retrospect, there's so much humor to find from the experience, um, experience of my husband and I losing our dog to cancer over, know, a, yeah. over the course of like six to nine months. And, um, you know, when I was in that phase, I couldn't tell stories. I couldn't wrap my head around anything of value to say, because all I wanted to talk about was what was happening to me. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of great quote, you know, there's a great quote about you don't tell stories from your wounds, you tell them from your scars, right? So there's mm-hmm. a real logic to the idea that you wait, you reflect, you get away from the pain. But if you feed on telling stories and love it the way that I always have, it's it was hard to accept that I couldn't tell stories about where I was at because I couldn't work them out. And I also couldn't find the value in, you know, there's a fun to revitalizing an old story and none of them were important compared to like the hell that I was in. Right. So this thing started happening only in the last year where I started telling more stories and finding new like pathways in them. And it's only in the last six months that I've started telling stories again, where as I'm prepping to tell it or just told it, if you ask me on that day, I'm like, this is my favorite story. Like this is this story right now that's happening. And I, and I miss that because I think they need to all be your favorite when mm-hmm. you're working on them and you're telling them. Like the the one that I'm telling, um, I started hosting Risk here in L.A. this year and it's fun because I – Yeah, that's great. I now have a monthly challenge to tell a story. Um, 
and as part of the hosting. Uh, and, you know, the first couple times I did it, I just told really fun, light, bantery things. And then it really hit me the third time I did it, you know, why don't I really like invest in something, you know? I mean, the job of the host is to tell something light. Granted, you don't necessarily want to be the person up there weeping through a story of loss because you kind of need to allow your guests to do that and you need to be there to lift up the energy after those people tell to make it safe but there's that still doesn't mean I can't tell a funny charming story with heart that matters to me versus like a throwaway anecdote about like a drunk guy on an airplane so the last few <laughs> months is always good to me. always yes, good me. I mean uh, sign me up for that story every time um but it has been fun to get back into the headset of now where once a month sure I have to tell a story but I feel like it's my job for for me to do whatever I need to do to make it my favorite story, at least for mm-hmm. a month, right? That's a really, really good point. Yeah. Um, I feel like I have yeah. my favorites, and then if I have to go up and tell one that I'm like on the fence about or don't feel as confident about, you're right. I should make every single one like my favorite one. Yeah. I think that, that – because that does come through. Yeah. I think there's an energy to it, you know, and – and to be fair, you know, I think favorite is also such a, it's like a weird value word too. It's kind of like, you know, you know, what's your favorite Pet Shop Boys song? Oh, screw you. That's, you can ask me to do. That's like saying, what's the best Smith lyric? Go to hell. Um, but <laughs> That's but, the thing with the Smiths. Like you can ask me what my favorite Smith song is and it changes actually from year to year or different periods of times in my life. Oh, like me too. I had like a weird Smiths rumspringa moment where I decided last year, I posted about it because I was so shocked. The Smiths' first album, self-titled album, just one day was like, oh, this is the best Smiths record. It came out of nowhere. I don't know how it moved above uh, The Queen is Dead, which still has the strongest side B of any record anywhere. But yeah, yeah, I kind of feel like with favorite, it's almost to go back to compartmentalizing. Like if I had to say... My favorite story that I can tell to lift people up and feel good about, there's a story that I've told a thousand times about getting a massage at the Russian Baths in the East Village. I told it moth touring that is so easy to tell because it's just such a fun, comedic, character-filled story with very low stakes that take everything in me to pump up. Like for me, it's so fun because I have to sell it. I have to be like a crazy gesture, like a clown doing funny voices and making funny shapes of my body. And it's, it's just pure fun. And on the other side of that, like, you know, there's a story that I tell, um, the new one that I tell about, um, you know, uh, our dog and how my little nephew the months after when I was really depressed was like a big part of what lifted me out of that because he was this like kid with no attention span who was six and didn't treat me the way everyone else treated me, which was like I was broken and you had to be delicate. And that kind of was the thing being around a six-year-old that made it like, that made me better. Like he really just being, so now I'm telling that and it's fun, but it also has heart. And like, that's the one right now. I mean, I only told it like two weeks ago, but I'm like, Oh, that's my favorite one right now. Um, so I also feel like there's that weird, you know, favorite is also tonally. What is the aim? You know, do you get to stand on the stage as a guest at the moth and tell something, you know, or risk and tell something with really deep, like deep emotional ties about your family and a loss or, do you mean like what's your favorite story? Like what do you have so much fun doing in a in a theater full of a hundred people? You know, right, right, exactly. I but I feel like I do have a favorite, um, which is the Porky story, and I, the reason <laughs> I 
it is my favorites because like I just know it. Like, yeah. Do you ever get these um, dreams where it's like a nightmare where the next day you have to go on stage yes. and you're supposed to sing and you don't know yep. any of the fucking words? Yeah. Not that I sing, but it's like this feeling. But with when I do the Porky story, it's like. I know it's going to get laughs. I know what part's going to get laughs. Mm-hmm. I can do it in my sleep. It makes me feel good when people laugh. And any if something is not as funny as that, I can get really uncomfortable. So I'm in this situation or at this kind of point in time right now where I don't have to be funny. Like I, there's stories that can have like a little piece of funny in it, but it should just be like a good story. But if I don't get that laugh, it just feels like, oh, my God, they don't like me. Well, um, isn't that so? They're I all going to laugh at you. Yeah, it's just I mean, well, like, that's, it's, that's, such ah. a, that's such an interesting thing, I feel like, about, about um, you know, funny stories versus serious ones. And students ask this question a lot. You know, um, oftentimes they'll, they'll tell really effective first versions of stories for the class, and we love them. They're hilarious. But they need revision, right? They've got to go back into the writing. They've got to do some restructuring. They need to add a scene. And then when they tell that story again, I tell them now. It's almost like the sort of creative trigger warning I give them. I'm like, hey, people aren't going to laugh again. And it's not because you're not funny. It's the nature of human beings. You're telling this to get notes on the structure and the way it works. But it's so hard to let go of once you've gotten it. You can't accept it. And I think that it highlights such an interesting thing about... I'm not saying that funny stories are easier to tell than non-funny stories. I do. There are certain storytellers who are so gifted and talented, but part of their skill set is not making people laugh. They could barely get a laugh out of people in 100 years, but I would listen to them read the phone book because of their skill set. However, there is an ease to knowing how you're doing on stage with a comedic story that you lose when you're telling a story that is dark or dramatic or that doesn't have those beat points because – you know, the laughter is immediate. It's audible. You know. And you don't have that when you're telling a darker story. Sometimes I think the audience can be deeply affected and with you when you actually feel like you are losing them. Like they are recoiling. Mm-hmm. Like they're so, they don't feel, you can, you know, you invent this whole thing in your head. They don't feel safe. I'm I'm hurting them, blah, 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 blah. And then afterwards you're like, oh, no, they were just in it. They were just with me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's not, that. That's something I need to. I think I need to work on is just like I can tell a story without it being funny, and people may like it. It's just like that's my gauge. If if there's yeah. no laughter, then I feel like I'm bombing. Um, but yeah. we'll see. It, but you do, David, have a full rate range, and it's like anyone that sees you, like my best friend Sarah. She's not a storyteller. She goes to the stories, and she'll still to this day say, "God, yeah, I love David." It's just. She's seen you do different stories. Um, the range is there. It's not always funny, but somehow it still is funny, even when it's sad. Um, except for when you did your show, Us and Them and Me, when we, your first half was about Charlie. That was just heartbreaking. I don't think there was too much funny in that. But then how you switched and went right into funny with Patty. I just That range to me is, 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 is amazing. And I don't know how one does it. Well, you know... I call this thing, and and I actually learned this from Josh Matthews, my clown friend. I think we, my clown friend. I think we cleaned it. Of course, by the way, he lives in Oakland. Yeah, I'm just going to be the asshole that says that. Yeah, say it. I think we coined this making bad kids, but, you know, he calls it hug them and hit them. And a lot of people call it, you know, Aaron Wolf, another great storyteller, I've called it salty and sweet. You know, there's um there's a thing that storytelling, you know, whenever I'm directing Risk here and we get a stand-up, because I love getting stand-ups, because um, stand-ups have all this stuff in their toolkit that maybe someone who doesn't perform in front of people that's submitted to Risk 
they have a whole different challenge, right? Like as a performer, because they don't do it. Now, a stand-up knows how to make people laugh. They know how to be in front of people. But it's like a whole new kind of challenge for them because they're used to gauging their performance by that audible laughter. And mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how often, it hasn't happened a lot, but I've seen it. I've seen stand-ups at storytelling shows have the audience and then lose them because you see them doubt their performance and mm-hmm. suddenly they they drive, they steer that steering wheel towards the comedy, which is what they know. And it it like castrates the story. And you see, and I've seen it happen so often, right? And it's just habit, right? It's hard. Um, I feel like when you confuse the two, and that's what I tell stand-ups when I, when I get them on wrist, and I'm like, hey, it's fine to be funny. Like I've reached out to you because you're funny, but think of the things that you've ever wanted to say or express, but can't because you're at a comedy show. And let's see if you can't still be funny and hysterical, but infuse what you're going to do for us with those things. I almost try to make them look at it as like, you don't have an opportunity at, you know, you don't have an opportunity working the line at the automotive factory to make a beautiful ceramic pot. So, yeah. so or vice versa, whatever, right? So it's interesting to sort of see them get that opportunity because for me, it's all about that salty, sweet hug them, hit them. That's why I love storytelling. Oh, I like that. And for me, the more that I do storytelling, I almost like if I'm telling a story that's all funny and I can't find a little bit of that like heartstring or that pathos, then I'm like, eh, it's not ready. Or like a lot of the new show that you saw, I'm still dealing with this. And it's kind of a, it's kind of presented in two halves with the, the hug them and hit them split. Because the whole point of that show is like sometimes you can't figure out how to tell a story about the dark stuff and you have to find another way to do it, right? And for me, I just feel like the older I get, the more I'm into that contrast. Like that is my jam. I want every mm-hmm. story to ha- to have that where you can't believe you're laughing so hard, but then you didn't realize that there was going to be that feeling around the corner. Or you can't believe that you're in such a dark place, but then all of a sudden you can't believe I just made a joke about that place that you're at with me. Have you ever done any storytelling back in your hometown of Texas? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done Is that sound- something that you foresee happening? Oh, I've done my solo show there, and I've done soundtrack series oh. there, and I host the Moth there every year. It. So I've, I've done a lot, and it's it's really fun, especially hosting the Moth there, because it's like you have a shorthand. You're the host, and as opposed to yeah. sort of seeing some show come through the big theater downtown with some stranger, you're seeing me with being like, the, isn't the it clown. crazy the way guacamole is, y'all? And isn't it funny the way that they've made that disgusting old warehouse into like an artisanal cheese shop? And it's fun right. because- they all get, they're like, yeah, you're one of us. So yes. that's, that's really fun. I love that. Yeah, I, I did that. I got to do that for the first time. Um, I did Michaela, um, Michaela Murphy's show on Friday. And I've told this story before about, you know, getting caught with a bong. My mom catches me. It's not like the most, I, I like, the, I personally like the story, but it's not mind blowing by any means. Yeah. But then when I'm telling the story, I always say, oh, I worked at this ice cream parlor in suburban suburbia. Uh, Pennsylvania or this and that and then when I got to tell it in Lambertville slash New Hope I was like oh yeah because then I was like I worked at Good Nose and everyone's like woo and then I got my small bong at now and then around the corner it's like where the Starbucks is now and it's just exactly what you said it's like you get to take these these uh locales and it's just like I can't tell you how many people come up afterwards are like oh my god my daughter used to go there all the time or oh my god that's where I first bought my first bong or my velour Jimi Hendrix poster. It's just, uh, it's, it's really great. I would it's, want to do that more. Yeah. It's like you have a shortcut 
to all the bits. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks so much, David. Good to talk to you. My pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Bridget. Thanks for listening, guys. And a special thank you to Dan Walnicki, our audio engineer, and Jared Bruder, designer and founder of the Dandy Group, who designed our logo. See you next time. 